everyone. Thank you for joining us again on the PIXIS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Sadie Rodriguez, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and a member of the PIXIS podcasting committee. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Courtney Solani. Hi, Courtney. My name is Courtney. I'm an advanced practice nurse at Lurie Children's in Chicago, and I'm a member of the PIXIS podcast committee. Today, Sadie and I have the opportunity to speak with the panel of speakers and moderators from the session entitled Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the PIXIS 2020 virtual meeting. So we'll let them each introduce themselves. My name is Chanel Clark. I'm a cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I'm also the associate medical director of the cardiac ICU. And I was one of the moderators for the session. Hi, I'm Mariam Name. I am a cardiac intensivist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and also an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I was also one of the moderators of this fantastic session at PCICS. Hi, delighted to be here. Carolyn Meltzer. I am not a pediatric intensivist. I am a neuroradiologist and nuclear medicine physician and delighted to have been included in this discussion. I serve as executive associate dean for faculty academic advancement, leadership and inclusion, and as chief diversity and inclusion officer for the Emory School of Medicine. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Sarah Teal. I'm a cardiac intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital. I am the director of the senior fellowship program and one of the associate program directors of the categorical fellowship program in Boston. I'm excited to be here. Hey, I'm Kayla Lopez. I am the advanced imager uh, pediatric cardiologist that is crashing this fun party because I'm not an intensivist, but I do work with a lot of intensivists working the OR a lot, um, and I'm a health disparities researcher and do a lot of work in, in transition medicine. Allen. I'm the medical director of the cardiac care unit at Lurie Children's in Chicago. I also am the medical director of the single ventricle program and the cardiac neurodevelopmental program. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us today. This is a group of just incredible women who I find inspiring and thought-provoking, kind and candid. So I thank you all for helping us create an open dialogue. And I just want to set the intention and tone that this is a safe space to talk about a really difficult subject. And really the intention is to raise awareness and compassion so that we can all be our best selves, promote internal change, which can hopefully lead to societal change. So Courtney and I just wanted to start off with acknowledging that there's a lot of different people who want to participate in the conversation and some different ideas and concepts get thrown out kind of really easily once you're well-versed in the conversation. But for some of our newer um, listeners or people new to the conversation, we just wanted to go through some rapid fire concepts with each of you to kind of set the foundation. So Dr. Meltzer, if we can start with you, what is cultural humility and why is it important? Well, Sadie, I think it's very much in line with your introduction, inviting us to be our best selves and to explore. So the term that used to be used more commonly was cultural competency, as if there were a fixed body of knowledge that we could acquire and then be competent in all cultures. And as if Culture was not something that changed and morphed as we go through life and are influenced by our environment. Cultural humility is much more in line with thinking of our interaction with others as a uh, continuous learning opportunity where we inquire from a place of humility and grace and 
try to enhance our knowledge and to be better supportive of all around us. Our next question is for Dr. Teal. What is implicit bias and do we all have it? Yes, we all have it. This is the first the answer to the second part. So implicit biases are these bits of knowledge that you have about social groups that accumulate over your lifetime. And, and you accumulate them without even being aware of it because they're so embedded in our culture and in our environments. And once you have these connections or these pieces of knowledge that you think you have, those pieces of knowledge influence your behavior towards members of different groups. And that can be gender, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic status. And it's really hard to be aware of your implicit biases because they exist in your subconscious. You don't think about them, they just happen. And so when we did this talk, I used the analogy that's actually Dolly Chug's analogy of peanut butter and jelly. Because if you say peanut butter, someone's likely to think jelly right away. And that's that immediate association that you don't have to intentionally think about. And those immediate associations we have about people. So those are implicit biases. We all have them and they're pervasive in society. Thank you. Dr. Lopez, could you walk us through the layers of systemic injustice? And what would you say to people who say, well, you know, some of those decisions were made in the past, they have nothing to do with us today? So I'm assuming that you're talking about the different levels of racism when you ask that question. There are four levels of racism. Some people can sometimes use terms interchangeably, but starting from the kind of more global picture and then moving down more like a funnel, at the top would be structural racism, which refers to the ways in which institutions operate, interinstitutional arrangements, uh, the way that different businesses operate and things, the way that things are set up in the United States, things like redlining, so where people can live, what that looks like, different policing uh, situations, all of those things kind of go along with the term structural racism because these effects of this particular type of racism are reinforced across multiple institutions. And it's really difficult to get at the root cause because it's so prevalent in society. It tends to be cumulative and pervasive and durable. Institutional racism is more along the lines of referring to institutional practices and cultural practices that perpetuate these racial inequities. And, you know, individuals can say, oh, well, I may feel a certain way, but my institution is now allowing me to do this because their beliefs are their current structure. And so that's kind of, again, more on the global stage. Interpersonal racism is a racism that occurs between individuals, and it's holding a negative attitude towards a different race or culture. And interpersonal racism can also be perpetuated by institutional racism and practices within the institution. And then finally, uh, individual or internalized racism is the racism that exists within individuals. If one holds a negative idea about his or her own culture, even if it's done unknowingly, you can have internalized feelings of, of a sense of oppression or privilege, depending on the situation that you're in. And that's an example of, of individual or internalized racism. One other thing I'd like to say has to do with the concepts of equity and equality, because they kind of go along with this entire spectrum. Those are not the same thing when people refer to health equity and health equality. Equality means giving everyone the same thing and expecting the same outcome. Whereas equity is you give people what they need to reach their best health. And so it's a different thing. So the two things are not equal. Health equity is what should be the goal. And actually, the goal should be justice where no one needs any assistance at all because everyone's at an even playing field. 
That's perfect. Thank you. I think those terms, I feel like get thrown around a lot and it's, it's really helpful to have that clarity. Yeah. I have your, your slide with the four layers surrounded by the housing, criminal justice, public health, education, banking, a really nice slide that you shared with everyone at the 2020 meeting. Our next question is for Dr. Allen. We have a couple of terms we were hoping that you could define for us. The first one being microaggression. So I think microaggressions are something that we can all relate to because everyone kind of experiences them, to be honest, no matter what your background is. But I think marginalized groups are more often to experience them in the workplace. So microaggressions are sort of like the subtle put downs, the sort of everyday indirect insults, the sort of passive aggressive. They're not overt racism, but they're just repetitive small things that build up over time. So for example, we had a facilitated session here at Lurie where one of the facilitators actually said to one of the individuals, one of the staff members who was speaking, he said to her, wow, you're very well-spoken during her series of comments that she made back. And that's, for example, one that I think for both women and particularly for a, a black woman in this particular case, that's a common sort of underhanded compliment sort of where like surprise that she's very well spoken, I think is sort of the way that it can be interpreted. And so just things like that over and over and over again, build up and can wear on a person. And I think we're pretty good about identifying like, well, that is overtly racist and it's going to have an effect on someone. These are much more subtle. And there's actually research that suggests that it builds up over time and wears on people in the same way as overt racism, as far as their job satisfaction, as far as their performance in the workplace. And you can imagine that both for medical staff and also actually for our patients, that if that is the environment in which they're existing, that that may have an impact on outcomes. Yes. Another thing we were hoping you could define for us is the term weathering. Yeah. So weathering sort of relates back to both microaggressions and, I guess, I mean, I guess we don't always call it this, but macroaggression. So like overt racism versus this sort of underhanded, more subtle version. I'm actually very fortunate that at Lurie, one of our neonatologists, Dr. Jimmy Collins, has done a lot of research in this area, specifically looking at preterm birth and um, outcomes of patients in the NICU. And what he's found is that patients of Black or African-American background who you know, have generationally lived in the United States actually have much worse perinatal outcomes than white women or first-generation African immigrants, which is kind of interesting, right? So that sort of suggests that this isn't a genetic or like a an intrinsic racial issue, like that race is a, is a societal construct, if that can be true. And so then the question is, is it just the socioeconomic status? Is it just the communities that people live in, or is it something about race construct itself? And the second layer of that story, and I know Kayla has done a lot of work in this area, so she can probably explain this better than I can, but the second layer of, of that research, which I think is the most interesting, is that for the first generation African immigrants, their health outcomes were the same as white women. By the second generation, the outcomes were the same as American Black, irrespective of 
where they lived in America. So we're doing something to them. There's something about this societal concept of race and the way that we put that onto people. We are creating a disease with systemic racism in this country. And so that phenomenon is called weathering, that the the toxic soup of systemic racism actually changes people's health outcomes beyond just, you know, the social influencers of health, like poverty and food security and those things. It's actually race itself that is harming or our construct of That's really powerful and um, thought-provoking. There's a kind of related question at the PCICS meeting that someone asked, just like you were saying. We, for so long in medicine, have used race as a surrogate for genetic differences between us. When, like you were saying, and I think Dr. Meltzer had said before, it's really just a social construct. And sometimes we end up just perpetuating some of the same inequalities, or I'm not even sure the right way to say it, but uh, perceptions or stereotypes by continuing to use that infrastructure. One of you had shared a really great article by the New England Journal of Medicine talking about that, but how are some ways that we can get the conversation going, shift the framework of how we look at it and talk about it within medicine and even outside of medicine? What I would say first is from my perspective, and again, I don't do a lot of health equity or health disparities research per se. And I agree 100% that we have been using race incorrectly in these studies. My concern is just that I don't think we shouldn't be using it at all. There are some cases where it's not useful, but there are others where I worry that it turns into the I don't see color conversation again, which I still think is harmful because as Dr. Teal pointed out, we all see color. We do. And it affects how we behave, whether it's unconscious or not, it does have an impact on our behavior and our behavior has an impact on patient outcomes. So it's not that the race of the patient necessarily is changing the biology. It's that our reaction to the patient is changing their biology. And so I think we just need to be clear about that in the way that we examine health outcomes and design interventions to implement. I think this can be particularly hard to think about because it's something that I would call as a Caucasian American ordinary privilege, meaning it's if you have the default characteristics of the group that is, quote, in power, meaning white male in some circumstances, but not all, your ethnicity, whether or not you have a disability, those are all things that you don't necessarily think about every day if you have those default characteristics because they're they're just they make life easy for you whereas if you can imagine somebody in a wheelchair has to figure out like how to navigate the world in a completely different context and so that's always on their mind whereas for me like walking across the street and walking to the hospital is not a problem so it becomes very hard to be aware of those things that you take for granted every single day and i think when we think about outcomes i think it's important to think about what we take for granted and that other people may be facing, um, and again, to go back to Dolly Chug's work, where other people are facing headwinds, things that are challenging and difficult for them, that we, in fact, may be feeling as tailwinds, things that help us in our everyday life. And identifying some of those may be critical, I think, to improving some of these outcomes. You know, to Dr. Allen's point, we have seen a lot of the stuff in terms of what happens when people move from other countries to the United States in terms of their health outcomes. And there's a term called the Latino paradox, because in, in the Latino paradox, if you are 
an immigrant that has recently come to the United States and you have a lower socioeconomic status than a white person in the United States with a higher socioeconomic status, your health outcomes are actually better than theirs as a Latino person. Then with each successive generation, that improved health, if you will, goes away over time. And so people have been studying this for years. And some of the questions as to you know why this might be ends up, once you kind of eliminate all the other factors, ends up being some of these structural inequities that are put into place and frankly, somewhat overt racism, because that this is why Dr. Allen is saying you cannot take that entirely out of the equation. Race is a social construct, it's true, but you can't completely negate that when we're talking about this, because that does impact how people are perceived. Perhaps people think that you are less smart because you don't speak English, or that you have an accent, so people have different perceptions of you for those reasons, or because of the color of your skin. I mean, these are all things that people hear and see that are real, and people have perceptions based on those interactions. And so um, in terms of the question that you had asked originally, Sadie, what can we do? You know, I think part of the answer to the what we can do has to be from a health perspective, we need more representation in medicine. We need more representation in pediatric cardiology. We need more representation in pediatric cardiothoracic surgery. We need more representation in medicine in general. I mean, uh, 6% of all doctors are Latino. Six to seven percent of all doctors are African-American. And so the representation, when you whittle it down as far as a pediatric cardiology intensivist, <laughs> for example, it, the numbers get very, very small. And it does change how people feel if you are a person of color that's being treated in a situation like this where you are vulnerable, where people are doing things to your child, where you have to completely have inherent trust, when there have been trust and historical issues having to do with trust because of experimentation on various individuals and cultures, it's all really intertwined. And so one of the ways to improve that is to say, we really need to focus on who's getting access to becoming a doctor. That's a really, I think, major part of this, the pipeline to becoming a doctor, you know, the support that one needs in medical school, residency, et cetera, all of that matters. Well, and this is mostly doctors on this podcast, but the same applies to our nursing staff who actually is like really in there on the front lines with the patients families. And that is similarly, there's a lack of diversity in nursing at many of our sort of quaternary care institutions where pediatric cardiac critical care is provided. You know, again, all the way, 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 way back in the pipeline, you have to be at a place that exposed you to cardiac, pediatric cardiac critical care to be one, confident enough to apply for those jobs out of nursing school. And to be successful in them, it's like a whole different world. And many of, you know, the numbers for diversity in nursing are not that bad. They can be better, but they're not that bad. It's 35% of, of bachelor's of science in nursing students and master's of science in nursing students. I mean, I can't speak for every hospital. That's certainly not the competition of nursing here at Lurie, despite all of our efforts to try to. What would be some strategies that we could collaborate with leadership, you know, address some of these problems and at what stages would be appropriate time and training to try to role model for these young trainees? I think that an important time to capture a lot of these people who we want to get interested in medicine or in nursing or becoming a physician is well before they are even in medical school. I think you almost need to capture them even before high school. I think it is just 
it's almost like, it, you know, you go to the elementary schools, you kind of go into the neighborhoods where you have a lot of these, I'm going to use underprivileged, but that's probably not the right word, but into these communities where people have societal disadvantages and you show them, you show them that there are physicians, that there are nurses, that there are nurse practitioners that are like them. And once so that they can realize that it is something that they are capable of doing. And, you know, in a perfect world, you'd have each of our inner institutions, which have such big footprints in our respective cities, make a concentrated effort to kind of have focused outreach programs within those communities where they're disadvantaged. Now, what those outreach programs look like, I think we could spend an entire hour talking about what they should look like. But I think having more of a direct impact in these young families, children's lives to kind of show them what can be done and show them what that route is or what that path is, is going to be important to kind of make that change. By the time we wait for college, by the time we wait for medical school, by the time we wait for nursing school, it's too late. Well, I also think that we way over here past all of that, past medical school, now out in the world, are going to have to start to look at people a little bit differently and at the the path that we think is the path to get here may not be the only path. We're doing residency interviews right now, and I've had the privilege of speaking to a number of medical students who I think this year, they are blowing my mind. It's just so fascinating how now here in 2020, when we can actually have these more interesting conversations, the things coming out of their mouths about what they're going to bring to the table. Like, you know, I think that I interview a lot of underrepresented minority candidates in part for this reason that they want us to demonstrate that we have underrepresented minority faculty to entice these people here. And I'm happy to participate in that. But it's not just that they're underrepresented, it's that they, I think, really do have a sense of like what they're going to bring, how they can be an added value to the program. But many of them have taken a somewhat non traditional route to get here, actually. Like, there's a lot of people who then, I mean, I guess it's not that non-traditional, but like they're doing postbacks and other things to improve their grades. Maybe they had to take the, the MCAT a couple times. Um, some of them had some issues in medical school that they had to overcome. And I think some of those things we've always thought of as a liability, as opposed to thinking of them as like, a, wow, this person was super committed to getting here. And they have been able to overcome these obstacles in their life, you know, as throughout childhood, whether it was experiencing violence or poverty, or even if that's not the case, but then continuing to press forward and tackling every obstacle that came, like, I don't know, that's what I do all day long here in the hospital. It's not like I got to be an attending and now like people just do whatever I want and everything works the way it's supposed to. I spent all day, every day trying to make people act right and overcoming adversity. So I think that's probably a useful skill and we should be valuing that in a slightly different way that these are people who are super committed to walking the path and to getting where they're trying to go. And that that skill is part of what they're adding on top of their unique perspective and the background that they have and the, the way they may be able to relate with patients and other staff differently. The weight that we put on each component maybe needs to be a little bit different. So it's both pipelining, but then also trying to see things through a slightly different lens. I'm going to add to what Dr. Allen said that because there are obstacles at every level from grade school on, you have to be the super committed, ridiculously resilient, 
to get to that point. So we sort of have a system where we're weeding out the people we want to see more of in medicine at every level because of our structural and societal inequities and racism. And, you know, we see the same thing with women in STEM from grade school, discouraged from going into male-oriented fields as people traditionally see them. Even in medical school, I met with a first-year medical student just a few years ago, and uh, she said, you know, so you're in radiology. I said, yeah, it's a really cool field. She said, yeah, it sounds like a guy thing, though. So how do we label what is the norm of who should do what? It's so deeply embedded in our society that for those who are not in that norm, they encounter headwinds at every level. I have to say, I love that statement. We're weeding out the people we want is one of the best things I've heard in 2020. I totally agree with that statement. Hey, podcast listeners. This concludes part one of our important discussion. But please tune into part two as our guests continue to share their compelling thoughts. See you soon. And thanks again for listening to the Pixis podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grace, was used under Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.